and welcome to Coronavirus the Truth, a podcast that focuses on the facts surrounding COVID-19. I'm Jeremy Kaur, host of the popular New Books in Medicine podcast and CEO of Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert led the Permanente Medical Group, the nation's largest physician group. He's a healthcare contributor at Forbes.com, a best-selling author, and a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business. His book, Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients, was published this May and is receiving industry-wide praise. It can be ordered through his website, robertpearlmd.com. All profits will be donated to Doctors Without Borders. Together, we also host the Hit Fixing Healthcare podcast. You can find this episode along with helpful, fact-based information on our website, fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Robbie, each week we begin the show with the most recent and relevant facts concerning the COVID-19 pandemic and its impact on American life. What happened and what does it mean? Jeremy, when it comes to the current Omicron surge, we're seeing the numbers begin to come down in the majority of states. This is exactly the same rapid up and rapid down pattern as other countries have experienced. Of course, given the size and diversity of the United States, the trends are mixed with some areas of the country well into the downward slope, but others not yet at the peak. And the total numbers remain at all time highs. Overall, the percentage of people having received two vaccine doses remains slightly under 65%, with only 40% of those having obtained a booster shot. Worldwide, the total number of deaths are now approaching 6 million. As has been true for most of the pandemic, the U.S. performance is worse than in other wealthy countries of the world. Our hospitalization rate, it's now the highest in the world with 450 people hospitalized per million Americans compared to 300 in Great Britain, 300 in Canada, and only 150 in Israel. The reason is straightforward. Protection against Omicron depends on being fully vaccinated and boosted. We rank 40th among nations in doing so. Currently, we're even behind Japan, that as you may remember, only had 10% of its population vaccinated when the U.S. was at 50%. You know, Jeremy, we're like a football team that led by four touchdowns at halftime. Now we're losing by four touchdowns. The number of excess deaths in the United States, it's indefensible. Of course, as the number of new cases decline, we're seeing the hospitalization rate decrease, although the total number of inpatients does remain near record highs. At least so far, deaths have not increased as rapidly as infections, but they remain similar to the levels we saw last summer with Delta, with over 2,000 Americans per day dying. Now, because deaths are a lagging indicator, they have continued to rise as the number of new cases and hospitalizations have gone down. Similar to early in the pandemic, three in four deaths from Omicron are occurring in people over the age of 65. Unvaccinated people, that are 100 times as likely to die from Omicron as individuals who have received three doses of an RNA vaccine, whether Moderna or Pfizer. And if all these numbers are confusing to listeners, let's just think about what are the biggest contributors to death? The two biggest factors are the vaccination rate and the ease of transmission. Think of it this way. If half the population is vaccinated, but a new variant is twice as transmissible, 
then the number of new cases will be equivalent, as will deaths, assuming the new strain is equally lethal. And if people take maximal precautions with masks and social distancing, then transmission will be slow. While when they gather for the holidays indoors, the number of new cases will rise, as will deaths. The peak in deaths was January 2020, when the variant circulating at the time was more transmissible than the original coronavirus. No vaccines were available, and people had just gathered for indoor family events. It dropped that summer. Why? Because vaccinations were now above 50%, and people spent more time outdoors. Then the fall comes, and it rises again as Delta, a more transmissible variant, comes to dominate the United States. In fact, it would have been much higher, except for vaccination rates in those 65 and over that had now reached 88%. Currently with Omicron, we're seeing a somewhat less lethal variant, but it's very much more transmissible. Boosters are providing added protection, which when you put all the pieces together, leaves us around the same 2000 daily deaths as we saw with Delta. Phrased differently, the behavior of this virus, it's a straightforward mathematical calculation. More people vaccinated, fewer deaths. More transmissibility, more deaths. More social distancing, less transmission, and fewer deaths. Big risk, of course, is a future variant that is both more transmissible and more lethal. So far, we have not seen that. As we said on the show, the odds are favorable that the combination won't arise, but it could. Of interest, there appears to be a new variant. It's called BA.2. Although its exact transmissibility compared to Omicron can't yet be determined, the good news is that it doesn't appear to be any more dangerous than the currently circulating strain. It has, however, led to renewed spikes in the number of cases in Denmark and slower increases in other nations, including Great Britain. What's clear is that even when Omicron is over, the pandemic won't be fully passed. There'll be spikes and lulls and new mutants becoming the norm, not the exception. One final development this week is a recent study from Axios. The survey showed that the most common masks worn by people today are cloth, with 39% of respondents doing so, despite the data, it shows they're very inefficient. 35% of people are wearing surgical masks, and 19% the highly effective, but often uncomfortable N95s. And this use of the cloth mask is happening despite the fact that it is much less effective compared to the surgical masks and dramatically and far less effective than the N95s. The groups most likely to use a higher quality mask, meaning more likely to use a surgical or N95 masks were older adults, married couples, and black individuals. Robbie, can you provide more information on the exact value of the booster shot specific to Omicron compared to receiving the first two doses of the current vaccine? Jeremy, the difference appears to be massive. As I mentioned, people who have received booster shots, they're incredibly well protected compared to unvaccinated individuals. And it appears that they are far better protected than people who only received two doses. Boosters have been proven not only to diminish deaths and hospitalizations, but also the likelihood someone 
is going to go to the ER for medical reasons in the first place. We're starting to understand the relative protection from a variety of opportunities to achieve immunity. A recently published papers showed protection after infection from Delta was better than two-dose vaccination, at least as measured by circulating antibody levels. People who have received three doses, however, had far, far higher antibody levels than those who simply had recovered from infection. And that gap between infection and three doses of vaccine has grown immensely relative to Omicron. More specifically, according to the CDC, after six months, two doses of either Pfizer or Moderna were only 57% effective in reducing hospitalization from Omicron and 38% effective in preventing ER visits. With a booster, effectiveness from hospitalization from Omicron rose to 90%. And avoiding the need for ER care, 82%. As a result, it's likely that by the end of the year, fully vaccinated people will require to have received three shots. But the need for boosters shouldn't surprise or even worry people. That's exactly what happens with most of the currently used childhood vaccines. Jeremy, anecdotal numbers aren't scientific, but they often are the reality in our lives. I probably know 50 people who had Omicron. Nearly all have been vaccinated and boosted. Nearly all of them either had no symptoms with the disease being found through routine testing needed for their jobs or travel, or maybe the equivalent of a mild two to three day winter cold. Three people I know, however, who became very sick. They had been vaccinated, but none had received boosters. What's been the experience for people you know? I mean, I know quite a few people who have gotten COVID lately. Uh, none of them have been hospitalized and all have recovered within a few days. Uh, a few of them said it felt like something worse than a mild cold, but not as bad as the flu. A couple of people said it was worse than the flu. Um, I am not sure, however, who was and who wasn't boosted. Um, I do know someone who is admittedly unvaccinated and got it, and she said her symptoms were basically a severe cold for a week, but with rest and drinking water, she was fine. Um, I know people who have young children that are not vaccinated, and their children all seem to have a cold with a fever. Um, one thing, though, that strikes me as odd is that a handful of the people I know that have gotten it recently have been the most careful throughout the entire pandemic vaccinated, boosted, always masking and social distancing or, and social distancing, excellent hygiene. And they seem to feel a sense of shame or embarrassment that they've gotten COVID, like they did something wrong. Uh, they did everything they were supposed to do and they still got it. A lot of my friends also know people who are in the same situation of did everything they could, got it and feel embarrassed or shame that they got it. Um, this phenomenon has been going on for a little while. Uh, in fact, the first person I know that actually got a breakthrough case was so embarrassed, uh, she cried and didn't want to tell anyone. I feel like less and less people are feeling this sense of shame when they get it, though, but perhaps it is something we should address as a nation that we're all going to get it at some point and there's no shame in getting COVID. Robbie, with the Olympics coming to China soon, what do we know about Sinovac, the Chinese manufactured vaccine? Jeremy, you may remember from our shows a year ago that China was using this vaccine not only for its own people, but as part of its global political efforts by making it available to other nations that couldn't obtain it or afford it. 
The Sinovac vaccine is currently in use in 48 countries around the world. Unfortunately, based on an article in the journal Nature Medicine, the vaccine provides only minimal protection against Omicron, at least among people who have received two shots. Researchers tested blood samples from 101 individuals in the Dominican Republic, all of whom had received two doses of Sinovac. They couldn't identify any neutralizing antibodies against Omicron. When they tested people who, in addition to two doses of Sinovac, had received the booster shot of the Pfizer vaccine, they found that the antibody levels had risen greatly, but only to the equivalency of people who had received two doses of Pfizer without a booster. And as we mentioned, this provides relatively weak protection. So if we were to create a hierarchy chart relative to Omicron, Sinovac would be at the bottom, as would people who had a prior infection, but no booster. Both groups have been shown to have almost no immunity against Omicron. Two doses of Pfizer, two doses of Moderna, or two doses of Sinovac plus a booster using one of the other vaccines, that would be the next rung up with increased protection. At the top would either be three doses of Pfizer or Moderna with over a 90% level of protection, or people who have had an infection followed by two doses of Pfizer or Moderna. With 36 mutations on Omicron spike protein, it's easy to see why the immunity created from the original vaccine is becoming less effective unless the individual has a booster and in the future, maybe two. And this is complicating efforts to protect people around the globe. Think about it. Every two boosters given in wealthier nations is one less person who can be vaccinated in poorer countries. And countries that continue to struggle to obtain enough vaccine for first shots for all of its people, they don't have the ability to give boosters. And that will be very problematic, particularly if they had to rely on Sinovac originally. Having said all this, remember that the research we're talking about is measuring antibody levels in the blood. And there's major protection against severe disease afforded through the body's other immune defenses. These are the things like T cells that can attack and kill infected cells. But it's the antibodies that are the main defense against becoming infected in the first place and then spreading it to others. And boosters are essential to maximize protection in the nose and throat, the first points of contact for viral transmission. Ravi, we've talked about vaccines in Omicron. What about the other medications that have been used to fight COVID-19? Jeremy, this is an important question in the context of vaccine uptake having stalled. As you know, there are a variety of treatments that exist, although nearly all are at best minimally effective at preventing death and in no way a substitute for vaccination. However, several did receive FDA approval, regulators feeling that minimal was better than nothing against Delta. But as in so many areas, Omicron has changed the calculus. Two medications in this category are monoclonal antibody combinations used to treat mild to moderate COVID-19, one manufactured by Eli Lilly and the other by Regeneron. Based on new research that shows that neither is effective against Omicron, the FDA has advised against their use. The agency has concluded that the risks for administration of these monoclonal antibodies are greater than the benefits. And as a result, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services halted 
distribution of these two drugs to states. This action was supported by the American Medical Association. The data on the ineffectiveness of these medications came from several studies. In a peer-reviewed paper published in the prestigious journal Nature, a consortium of researchers in Europe found that although these antibodies could neutralize live Delta virus in the laboratory, they failed when tested against Omicron. And given that 99% of the current coronavirus in the US is Omicron, the data appears to be overwhelmingly conclusive that these monoclonal antibodies should be sidelined. Robbie, several listeners have asked about long COVID-19. What have we learned lately? Jeremy, long COVID-19 happens in people who have become infected with the virus and despite recovering from the acute disease, continue to have symptoms such as fatigue, shortness of breath, problems concentrating, sleep difficulties, anxiety, and depression. The frequency of long COVID is uncertain, and studies have concluded that symptoms persist in anywhere from 5% of people to 30% of people 12 weeks and longer after becoming infected. Research from the journal Cell provided insights into the risk. They found that high amounts of the virus are associated with developing this condition. And consistent with this hypothesis, new data from Great Britain published last week showed that vaccinated adults who became infected had a 40% lower chance of developing these debilitating lingering COVID symptoms than individuals who were unvaccinated. Further support in this conclusion was a paper in Nature published last week from Israel. The paper showed the salutary effect of vaccination on reducing people's risk. They found that individuals who had received two doses of the vaccine and became ill from COVID-19 were 54% less likely to report headaches, 68% less likely to have muscle pain, and 64% less likely to experience fatigue compared to unvaccinated individuals. And given the data from Cell on the association of long COVID with elevated viral loads, all of these research studies fit together. People who are vaccinated and become infected, they avoid the peak viral levels, thereby limiting the risk of developing long-term consequences. It's another reason to be vaccinated, even if you're young and healthy. Robbie, in our last show, we talked about vaccination mandates. This remains one of the hottest topics. What are your current thoughts? Jeremy, the best way to answer this question is to split it into two parts. The first is whether mandates work, and the second is whether they should be put into place. The answer to the first part is becoming clear. Unlike many of the incentive programs that gave money, lottery tickets, or donuts to people who came for vaccination, and they failed to raise vaccination rates significantly, mandates work. The most recent data came from the economists in Canada who looked at what happened after Canada announced that people would need to prove they were fully vaccinated in order to enter gyms, bars, and restaurants. They found first dose vaccinations rose 42% the next week and by 71% over the first two weeks. The result was 287,000 more Canadians were vaccinated by six weeks after the mandate went in place. And this is in a nation with one-eighth the population of the U.S. And the results from this study matched what happened over the past few months in a variety of European nations, including Italy, Germany, and France. 
But the second question about whether to implement a mandate, that's more difficult. Although the first question about whether it works is scientific, the answer to the second is one of values. The first question has an objective answer. The second, it's personal and subjective. The answer depends upon the criteria one uses for answering it as much as the data itself. If saving lives is paramount, the answer is yes to vaccine mandates. If avoiding overwhelming hospitals during spikes in transmission is most important, once again, the answer is yes. But if protecting personal choice and privacy are paramount, then the answer is no. I personally favor the mandates, but not for the reason you might assume given that I'm a physician. The reason I'm an advocate for mandates is that I believe that the harm that is happening as this pandemic persists to kids, parents, and businesses is massive, underappreciated, and growing exponentially. Mandatory vaccination is the best way I know to prevent further damage. A friend sent me a photo of her kids. They were huddled in a school cafeteria. The school was open, but classes couldn't be held due to so many teachers being homesick. After two years of reduced schooling, the damage of missing more class grows exponentially by the month. Moreover, last week I called two of my favorite restaurants. I was looking for dinner reservations. Both were shut down, likely forever. And the growing stress on parents as they try to balance work problems, educational difficulties, and relationship issues, it's become almost impossible for an increasing number of families. Mandatory vaccination won't make COVID-19 go away. It will be endemic probably for the rest of our lives, but mandatory vaccination will reduce the spikes, the ones that make it impossible to provide excellence in education, access to medical care and business recovery. And I believe everyone can agree that educating children, providing medical care and maintaining the viability of businesses are goals that we all share and we share as a nation and I believe that mandatory vaccination will get us there far more rapidly than anything else we could do. Robbie, in January, you predicted that vaccine manufacturers would begin to test an Omicron virus-specific vaccine. I've heard that now. One month later, it is coming true. What's, what's happening? You're correct, Jeremy. Both Pfizer and Moderna have begun testing a new RNA vaccine targeted to Omicron. The likely time it will take to become available, most likely isn't until summer at the earliest. And by then, of course, Omicron will be far less of a problem than today. So listeners may wonder why are the manufacturers doing this? The answer has to do with what is likely to happen in the future. We've discussed in past episodes that the factor leading to a virus becoming a threat is transmissibility. A more transmissible virus will replicate faster and replace a less transmissible variant. Although we can't be certain, the odds are that the next mutant will come from the variants today that are the most transmissible. And right now, that's Omicron. You can think of it as branches of a tree coming off of the limbs that already exist rather than from the trunk itself. As such, even if this vaccine isn't exactly targeted at the next variant, the genetic makeup of this next mutant is likely to be more similar to Omicron 
than the first virus that came ashore two years ago. But all this is about probability. There's no guarantee that will be the case. Most likely the FDA approval process relative to a next generation vaccine shouldn't take as long to complete as it would for a new vaccine. But given the continued effectiveness of the original vaccine in people who have received three doses, it's unlikely the FDA will race to give its approval as it might have were an effective vaccine unavailable. Rabbi, our good news segment is valued by listeners looking for something positive in the pandemic. What's good this week? Obviously, the best news is the decline in Omicron cases that we're starting to see and the likelihood that the worst of the current spike is over. Having said that, here's some other positive and interesting tidbits. First, people are very happy about three COVID-19 developments. Based upon surveys that have been done, 81% of Americans feel positive about the protection the current vaccines are providing them. And 84% of people are pleased with the government providing free COVID-19 home test kits. And finally, 84% of people are positive about the Biden administration's plan to distribute free N95 masks. To date, 44% of US adults have already ordered home testing kits through the government portal. That average includes half of the survey respondents who were vaccinated, but only one in five of those who remain unvaccinated. Coupling the government distribution of free kits with the federal mandate for insurers to cover the cost of up to eight tests per month, we can expect that home testing will become more routine in the future than it has been in the past. And given the high transmissibility of Omicron, that will be a very positive development. Robbie, we continue to hear from listeners that enjoy our efforts to expand this material beyond the COVID-19 pandemic and the coronavirus. You've just published the first two of what will be a series of articles on breaking healthcare's rules. What did you write? Jeremy, the rules of healthcare are both written and unwritten. The written rules, they can be found in textbooks on how to take care of various medical problems. And they can be found in material published by regulatory agencies. In contrast, the unwritten ones, they aren't learned in classrooms. They aren't found in textbooks. They're passed from one generation of doctors to the next. When medical students and residents observe chief residents and attending doctors make decisions and then emulate how they act. Many of these unwritten rules are left over from the last century and they've been made obsolete by 21st century advances, both in science and society. And having studied the impact of these outdated medical practices throughout my career, I don't believe we'll be able to address today's healthcare challenges and difficulties unless we're ready to break these antiquated rules. In the first article of this series, I pointed out that we continue to rank medical students and residents on their ability to memorize thousands of arcane facts. That's just what the current national standardized exams test and what the classroom examinations assess. In the 20th century, memorization was vital. You know, a doctor would need a 50 pound backpack to carry all of the medical knowledge of the time. But now that information, it's readily accessible on the smartphone that every doctor carries in his or her pocket. 
Rather than having to memorize tens of thousands of facts, what physicians need today is the ability to use technology to access them, and then the skill to apply them to ambiguous situations and finally communicate the information to patients and colleagues. And the current standardized tests and process for ranking candidates and the process for selecting medical students, it doesn't assess that. And I believe that we are therefore not picking the best doctors to practice in the next decade, as opposed to the ones that practiced two decades ago. In the second article, I looked at the rule around how we pay doctors. The rule from the last century was that the best way was transactionally, a quid pro quo relationship. You provide a service and I pay you a fee. If I want two slices of pizza, I pay twice as much as if I only want to eat one. You know, that worked well in the last century. When the problems that patients experienced were acute, a broken bone, appendicitis, and there was little doctors could offer besides relatively straightforward and inexpensive treatments. But today, seven in 10 people die from chronic diseases, as well as the complications that develop from them. And physicians now have dozens of ways to treat almost every medical problem. You know, what's needed now is a transformational approach to payment that rewards doctors for better outcomes and rewards them for preventing complications like heart attacks and strokes. In the article I, I wrote, I provided an easy way to advance the payment models of today, one that Medicare could implement next year. In an interesting healthcare study published in Health Affairs, researchers analyzed the electronic medical records of 18,500 patients from an urban medical center in Chicago. They used AI to identify negative descriptors like non-compliant, resistant, aggressive, and they carefully controlled for socio-demographic and health factors. What they found in this study was that compared to the entries for white patients, black patients had two and a half times higher chance of having at least one negative descriptor in the medical record because doctors often copy and paste information from prior records these negative descriptors are passed from one physician to the next. I talk about in the book, Uncaring, how the culture of medicine kills doctors and patients, about racism, and how the medical culture blinds us to that reality. This study closely aligns with the data that I offered. And since Uncaring was published, the problem of racism in medicine has become worse, not better. As an example, in 2020, four different national surveys found that somewhere between 11% and 20% of Black adults have experienced discrimination in healthcare in the preceding year, a rate three times higher than for white respondents and twice as high compared to Latino and Hispanic adults. Jeremy, as a patient, how do you view the process of rule breaking? On one hand, it offers tremendous opportunity to advance healthcare in the 21st century. And on the other hand, one could argue it's somewhat risky. Robbie, I think rule breaking and going against the grain is important. Rule breakers are the ones that create and drive real change. If the founding fathers, for example, 
never broke the rules, America would have never existed. Look at people who were rule breakers and challenged the authority at their time. Galileo, who is considered to be the father of modern science, was considered a heretic and spent the end of his life under house arrest. Rosa Parks refused to sit on the back of the bus. Gandhi used nonviolent protests to help get India its independence. Martin Luther King Jr. was arrested 29 times for his civil disobedience in his fight for equal rights for African Americans. Susan B. Anthony and the suffrage movement. There are many, many, many examples of people like this who broke the rules, stood up to the establishment, and who were offered hated, censored, jailed, or worse in their time, but are looked back on as heroes for the change they created and the sacrifices they made. American healthcare needs rule makers to go against the status quo and create real change for the betterment of patients, doctors, healthcare workers, the nation, and the world. Robbie, any parting thoughts? Jeremy, I see the transition out of Omicron as an opportunity for all Americans to put their political views behind them and figure out how as a nation, we can start getting back to normal. On a podcast this week, I heard data from a New York Times survey. It looked at people's attitudes on COVID-19. There was minimal difference between men and women, minimal difference between people over 16 under 40, but there was massive difference in perspective based on political affiliation. The reporter who talked about the survey noted that vaccinated and boosted Democrats were overly fearful of becoming severely ill compared to the actual risk. Assuming that they didn't have a major disease compromising their immunity, their risk of dying from Omicron was less than from the flu. In contrast, unvaccinated Republicans greatly underestimated their risk, not recognizing that their danger was approximately 10 times higher than from the flu. There's risk in everything we do, and accurately understanding its magnitude is vital. But it's illogical that a person's political views would distort the science, but that is what we are seeing. What's fascinating to me about the data is that although there was this major divide when it came to risk assessment, there was almost complete agreement between the two groups that our nation faces grave danger from what's happening as a result of Omicron to kids, schools, businesses, adults, and people's mental health. I'd love to figure out a way to bring both groups together, put the politics behind them, and have them focus on the intense areas of broad agreement that I know they share. I welcome any thoughts listeners have on how to accomplish this. As a reminder to listeners, this episode is available on our website, fixinghealthcarepodcast.com, and on all podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and share it with your friends and family. To submit a question or comment to the host, please visit the contact page on our website or send us a message on Twitter, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Thank you for listening to Coronavirus The Truth, and have a great day.